continue our series on where would Jesus be. So Lord, we just say thank you for Nigel. Bless him this morning as he shares with us. Amen. Amen. Thank you very much indeed, Jenny. It's really good to be here and to sense that God is moving, isn't it? So the testimony is about how God's speaking to us and what God's doing. And thank you, Pat, for having the courage to come up and talk about your dreams. Um, but great, yeah, Pat had that word about daffodils, and that uh, might have been at work in your life if you've used the word that God's given you, and, and he's brought things to bear in your life. It may have started already, it may still be to start, but let's hear from God together, and let's action his word and pray it in and act it in. I'm just going to read the passage again from the Matthew version, Matthew 21. And uh, this is what we're going to look at this morning. We're looking at uh, where would Jesus be uh, in the temple, but not in the temple worshipping, but uh, in the temple to cleanse it. Jesus entered the temple and began to drive out all the people buying and selling animals for sacrifice. He knocked over the tables of the money changers and the chairs of those selling doves. And he said to them, The blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. The leading priests and the teachers of religious law saw these wonderful miracles and heard even the children in the temple shouting, Praise God for the Son of David. But the leaders were indignant. They asked Jesus, Do you hear what these children are saying? Yes, Jesus replied. Haven't you ever read the scriptures? For they say, You've taught children and infants to give you praise. Then he returned to Bethany, where he stayed overnight. So thank you, Rachel, for <laughs> acting that out. Was that good? Did you enjoy that? <laughs> it's very kind of therapeutic. I just thought, I hope, <laughs> hope no one's had a heart attack while that's been going on. But I just came to mind, just a little flavor, just imagine Jesus doing that with all these tables and the animals and everything. It must have been more dramatic even than that. So, and Rachel was playing drums today, and Sam Corey, who isn't here, said, uh, I need to check out whether you can play or not. So I don't want you playing like a girl. Um, but she played excellently, so thank you very much for that. And uh, <laughs> Sam Corey, how can you say such things? So where would Jesus be? And he'd be in the temple, uh, but not in the Holy of Holies, not in the uh, holy place, but in the outer courts. That's where he is today. If you put the next picture up, please, Elaine. And that's uh, a kind of movie version and maybe gives you a little bit of an impression of uh, all the people clamoring around and the animals and everything else. And this is part of uh, Holy Week and I wanted to think about momentous weeks just first, and then we'll finish up by looking at the temple incident. If you put up the next slide, please, Elaine. I talked to a few people this week about momentous weeks in their lives. I talked to Paul Leonard, and uh, he thought about uh, the week of his wedding. So I don't know if that's been a momentous week in any of your lives. He remembered uh, working on a house that the church earned and trying to put in an MFI kitchen two days before he got married, so he was really working hard at the wedding itself. He was kind of occupied with other things, and they went up to the Chalfonts where he got married, that area near Gerard's Cross where there's more millionaires than anywhere else in the UK, so quite a posh kind of area for the wedding. So they went up there, had the wedding, and then uh, less than two days later, 
He was in Thailand and he took Lucy on a backpacking El Cheapo honeymoon just so that she could get used to the, the kind of life she should be accustomed to. And uh, he said she had a nice little kind of push-along suitcase. He had his rucksack and they were sitting there on the chicken train in the early morning with all these people that couldn't speak English and all the chickens running around. So that was quite a momentous week that Paul shared uh, someone who wants to remain anonymous, who's not part of this church, said, I can call her Debbie, but don't reveal her real name. She remembered the, the week she first fell in love when she was 20. And she remembers not eating for a whole week. I don't know if that's happened to anyone here. And she remembers uh, kissing in a car, looking out of the Thames barrier in Woolwich. So romance was, you know, it was really up there a few years ago. Um, they didn't, uh, didn't stay together, unfortunately. Thank you, Pete. Ask Dragoner, and uh, this came to her mind when uh, she found out she was pregnant with twins. And uh, <laughs> that's not actually a picture of Dragoner <laughs> and the twins. And she went to a hospital appointment, kind of scan on the twins, and came home, turned the telly on, and 9-11 was happening. And she kind of watched uh, that for about nine and a half hours straight, and actually seeing the planes hit the towers and the... Uh, what uh, the events after that. So that was a momentous week in Dragoner's life uh, with the twins and that. I think for me, one week was uh, four years ago, uh, and I remember it. My father was dying, and he almost died, and then uh, miraculously kind of came around, came home, and eventually died at home. But I remember that week when he was dying, uh, and our daughter got a job away from London, so she was moving away. Uh, and that kind of combined thing, getting ready for my daughter to move away permanently from home and uh, seeing my dad dying and know he's going to die in the next few days. So uh, we get momentous weeks, don't we, in our lives. Um, next one, I thought I'd put that up just to see if it provokes any reactions. But when I had a sabbatical last year, I thought, yeah, different from uh, Merkel and uh, Trump. So I don't know if this is more worrying um, than that. I like the color coordination as well. Um, anyway, but when I was on my sabbatical last year, I thought I must uh, stop watching telly so much, and you know the news doesn't change much from day to day. So why do I watch it? Uh, I need to be listening to God. Then I got back from my sabbatical, and there was the referendum, and there was Brexit, and then Cameron resigned, and the whole Trump thing. So I think I got absorbed in what's been happening in those momentous times in our society. But I don't want to be focused on them. I need to stick with that thing, that calling from God to be focused on him. But there's a very momentous week in the earthly life of Jesus, and we call it Holy Week. And uh, if you want to put the next slide up, please. And it's amazing what happens in that final week of the earthly ministry of Jesus. And obviously we're in this season of Lent, and we're building up to Easter but I don't think I really realized all the events that happened just in that one week. And last week we heard from Jenny about the triumphal entry, how Jesus rode into Jerusalem like a king. He's really the Jewish Messiah, but he rode humbly and he didn't overthrow. He didn't use power and might is right. He came in a different spirit and used power in a soft but dramatic way. 
And then the Monday of that week is today's passage, the cleansing of the temple. He's overturning all these tables and uh, standing for truth and righteousness in the house of God. On Tuesday, he's teaching in Jerusalem. And there's huge clashes with the religious authorities. He's taking on God's religion that's been corrupted, that's been twisted. And he's standing for truth and justice and challenging those leaders. And they're challenging and trying to attack him. It's interesting to to see what he teaches in that one day. And if you look in Mark's gospel, you see he challenges the religious leaders and he tells a parable that you guys are misrepresenting God. You think you're in charge of God's kingdom, but you've got it wrong. And you're going to be replaced. So he's challenging religious authority. He talks about taxes to Caesar. What does he say? Render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. So they're trying to trap him to get him killed. And he said, well, if you have to pay some taxes, who's on this coin? It's Caesar. Give that to him. What's the image of God? The image of God is you. So give your whole self, including your money, to God. That's the right way forward. So he's dealing with money. He's dealing with the secular authorities. He's dealing with the, original, uh, the religious authorities. Then he talks about the resurrection. And a load of them say, the resurrection's a load of rubbish. And they give their, their nice logical thing about uh, seven brothers marrying the same woman. What's going to happen to prove that the resurrection can't be true? And Jesus says the resurrection is a reality. We will rise again. And that's very good news. Then he talks about the greatest commandment. What's the greatest commandment? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. So right on the, the few days before he's crucified, he chooses to affirm that great commandment. So then he declares that he's the Messiah, And then we get the little story of the widow's offering. So we've thought a bit about giving, render unto Caesar. We've had our gift day today. And that widow who gave two tiny coins was giving her all to God. And that's better in God's eyes than rich people giving a little bit of their surplus. And she's saying, God is my God. Money is not my God. And she's acting in faith that if she gives all to God, then God will provide for her. And Jesus chooses to to bring out that story in these last crucial days before the cross. And then the Wednesday, it's that woman that comes up with the alabaster jar and breaks it. And they say, it's valuable, that perfume. But she gives up her, effectively, her nest egg, her life savings, her pension. She pours it out on Jesus to anoint him before his death and burial as a prophetic sign. And Jesus values that and he says everywhere the gospel's taught this woman will be spoken about and behind the scenes the jewish leaders are working out how to kill jesus and they're getting judas ready to betray him then on the thursday there's the last supper and then he spends night time in the garden of gethsemane and then friday overnight the trial the torture and he's on the cross on the friday and the end of the week on the saturday He was in the tomb, or was he? And we'd be looking at the next few uh, parts of that week and the next couple of weeks. But it's a very momentous week in the life of Jesus, and wonderful in microcosm to see uh, the pinnacle of his earthly ministry. 
And I think it'd be really helpful to carve out some time, whether it's in Holy Week itself, in two or three weeks' time, or any time between now and then, just to think and meditate on the events of that one week. And look at those two or three chapters, say in Mark's Gospel, 11, 12, 13, and read about Holy Week. Read about what Jesus said. Read about what Jesus did. And let it speak to you. And I want it to challenge my attitudes, my priorities, what I stand for, what's my purpose, what's my destiny. I want that momentous week to have an impact on me. Anyway, let's focus finally on today's story. And next slide, please. Jesus, uh, as I said, is in the temple complex. uh, And you have the holy place uh, right inside that tall building. Around it, you have the holy of holies. Then you have the place where the priests are allowed to go. And then the men, and then the court of the women. And then the big area outside the court of the Gentiles. And that's where Jesus uh, was. And next one, he makes... uh, a demonstration, he's overturning the tables. And it, all, it made me think of Naomi. Every time I see pictures of Naomi, she's on Facebook. She's been demonstrating to save the NHS. So she's outside Parliament or in the East End of London. That's great. Jesus did a demo. He, didn't, he, he wasn't in power. He didn't change the law. The money changers probably set up their tables the next day and carried on ignoring him. But he made a powerful statement and we got a little bit of a flavor of it when that table was overturned there and it's right to demonstrate and stand up for truth and justice and righteousness and campaign on things so if God's calling you to do that in the right spirit in the Holy Spirit then I'd encourage you to do that well done Naomi I think tomorrow Naomi is, is her last day in her practice as a GP in the East End after how many years 28 years in that practice in the East End of London. It's the last day tomorrow. So be, yes, yeah, fantastic. And do be praying for her. Quite a momentous week. Let's just look at the passage then and go through it and then we'll conclude. This is the the Matthew version that I've just read. Jesus entered the temple He began to drive out the people buying and selling animal sacrifice. He knocked over the tables of the money changers and the chairs of those selling doves. Jesus is angry. Jesus is angry. It's not a a personal offense kind of anger. It's a righteous indignation. I said to Rachel, can you do righteous indignation? So I think she managed to do that. He's angry at his father's house being misused in this kind of way. And it made me think a bit, how do we conceive Jesus? And I think, and rightly so, our our default position is kind of gentle Jesus, meek and mild. Uh, He's not going to blow out a dimly burning candle. He's not going to break off a bruised reed. He's kind, he's generous, he's loving. But... A heart of love can also feel righteous anger, a godly jealousy, and be really moved. He was moved at the death of his best friend Lazarus. He hated the fact that his friend had died. He hated that death had come into the world because of sin and because of Satan. He was moved by that. And he is a God of righteousness and justice. And he's moved 
by injustice and maltreatment of people. And we need to see Jesus in the totality, not just, please Jesus, be my genie and answer all my prayers. But Jesus, I want to to know you and be like you and share your anger in the right way, as well as knowing that you have immense love and care for every individual. He used to have a youth worker called Ange, and he said, we need to get the balance right in this. We've, we've probably moved from God Almighty, and God's too kind of distant, and we reacted against that, and God's our friend. But he, he would always say, have we moved to God Almighty? And he's just my mate, and he's a nice guy, and he's going to help me. And we need to get the balance right and have that fear of God, that respect for God, God Almighty and not just God Almighty. Let's move on. He said to them, the scriptures declare, my temple will be called a house of prayer, but you've turned it into a den of thieves. And the temple was the the place in the world, then at the center of uh, faith in God, represented by his people, the Jews. It was the place you go to pray and worship. And the outer courts that we looked at earlier was the only place in the temple complex that Gentiles, non-Jews, could worship God and gather for prayer. And Jesus says, you've turned it into a den of thieves. Why was that? Well, obviously, pilgrims came to Jerusalem, and they needed to buy suitable sacrificial animals. You had to have the right animal that was unblemished, uh, and you had to buy those. And they also had to change their money into the local currency to pay the temple tax. So there needed to be some trading. And presumably, the traders took advantage and they charged high prices for the animals and they offered poor exchange rates uh, for the money changing. And that's an issue. One commentator said, rather than den of thieves, it should be robbers. And he makes this distinction. Apparently, the word thief, kleptes, where we get the word kleptomaniac, means a kind of more opportunist thief, someone that sees something, you've left, like Dave left his phone out, and then a thief nicked it, and Dave left his bike out, and a thief nicked it. You've had a hard time, haven't you, Dave? But you've got a phone and you've got a bike again. Uh, and that's a kind of opportunist thief, but he thinks the word here, well, the word here is lystes, which is more of a large-scale systematic theft, institutional corruption endorsed by the chief priests. And maybe Jesus' anger is more against that ongoing institutional corruption than against the petty theft. But I don't know for sure, but that's one commentator. Someone else said it's a real irony that in the temple of the living God, there's worse robbery than the bandits on the road from Jerusalem to Jericho. That was a dangerous place. You know that story that Jesus told there were caves where those robbers would gather and they'd go out and pounce on unsuspecting pilgrims. But there was worse robbery in the house of God than there was on the road. So why was Jesus angry? Is it because the traders are being unjust and they're ripping people off? That If they were charging the right prices, would he be happy? Is it just they've, they're ripping people off? Is it because he hates organized systematic robbery? I think he does. I think he'd be outraged at some of the things that go on in our economic system. But it actually says he drove out all the people buying and selling. 
And it wasn't just an attack on the traders. I don't think he was saying, if you charge a bit of a lower price, I'll be fine with it. He's saying you shouldn't be there at all. You shouldn't be there at all. The most important thing is our relationship with God. You should love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the place on earth that represented loving God, worshipping God, putting God first and honoring him had become a place of trading and money-making. It was in the wrong place. And Jesus is angry when we should worship God. We should put God first. God is our loving Father. Jesus has done everything he could. He laid down his life for you. He went to the cross and he bled and he died for you to forgive you and give you eternal life. When people trash that, when people ignore that, when people put that way down on their list, I think that makes him angry. We should, as a number one, honor God and love God and put him first. And the robbery here is not so much that people are ripped off by unjust prices, but that the temple is robbed from its sacred purpose, the worship of God. We don't have to go into a temple in Jerusalem to worship God. Jesus said you can worship the Father in spirit and truth wherever, whenever. But God, I think, is bothered when he's way down on people's lists. And we need to, I need to learn what is to prioritize him and go to him first and realize his great love for me. Moving on, it says the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. The leading priests and teachers of religious law saw these wonderful miracles and heard even the children in the temple shouting, praise God for the son of David. But the leaders were indignant. They asked Jesus, do you hear what these children are saying? Yes, Jesus replied, haven't you ever read the scriptures? For they say you've taught children and infants to give you praise. Then he returned to Bethany where he stayed overnight. And as well as challenging the powers of this world, challenging the powers of religious leaders that are corrupt, challenging corrupt economic practices, Jesus is welcoming the disabled. And in the Old Testament, they were excluded from the temple. He welcomes the disabled and heals them. He welcomes the children that are looked down on and disregarded and blesses them and affirms them. And they, they've got the heart of God and these great religious leaders have got it all wrong. Jesus affirms, blesses, and prays for children. And we need to have his perspective. And then the other parallel passage, just quickly, next slide, in Mark. Uh, it says in verse 16, I won't read it all here, in verse 16, he stopped everyone from using the temple as a marketplace. There's two ways that you could translate that phrase. One is using it as a marketplace, uh, and the other is carrying merchandise through the temple. And apparently it got used as a shortcut between the Mount of Olives and the heart of the city. So you're carrying your stuff you want to sell, and you think, well, if I have to walk all the way around that temple, it'll take me an extra half an hour. I'll just cut through the temple and go and sell my stuff. And again, it's the same issue. It's a disregard for God. It's not prioritizing God. It's using the temple as a shortcut rather than I want to come 
and worship God for who he is. It's a lack of respect for God. Zechariah 14.21 says this, All who come to worship will be free to use any of the pots to boil their sacrifices, and on that day there will no longer be traders in the temple of the Lord of Heaven's armies. And it's a fulfillment of that prophecy. And then Isaiah 56, verses 6 to 8 says this, I will also bless the foreigners who commit themselves to the Lord, who serve him and love his name, who worship him and do not desecrate the Sabbath day of rest, and who hold fast to my covenant. I will bring them to my holy mountain of Jerusalem and will fill them with joy in my house of prayer. I will accept their burnt offerings and sacrifices because my temple will be called a house of prayer for all nations. For the sovereign Lord who brings back the outcasts of Israel said, I will bring others too besides my people Israel. And the message wasn't just to the people Israel that God chose. The message goes out in Jesus' name to the whole world and everyone's meant to come to worship God. And, it, and Mark adds in the phrase that Matthew hasn't got. Matthew had, my temple will be called a house of prayer. But Mark adds in, my temple will be called a house of prayer for all nations. And so that is a place to pray for the nations, I believe. And as we gather together in the name of God, we should be praying for all the nations and all the peoples of the world. And also a declaration that people from every tribe and tongue and people and nation can come and know God because of Jesus Christ. And we shouldn't put up exclusions and barriers to that. And you get to Revelation and you see that uh, the kingdom of God has fully come. And people from every people, tribe, tongue and nation are there in the, in the spirit, in the heavenly realm, worshipping God. And that's a wonderful fulfillment of what God's plan has been for all time. And then finally, at the end of the passage, the real danger you sense. The chief priests and the teachers of the religious law plan together how they're going to kill Jesus. And there's danger in following Jesus as well. Jesus said, if they hated me, they're going to hate you. I've got loads of time for people that stand up for truth and justice, that campaign for that for years. I've got time for whistleblowers who say something's wrong in my organization. And often they can lose their jobs and at least for a season lose their reputation by doing that. There's huge, it's a huge cost to do that. But I've got massive respect for people that do stand up in those situations. And Jesus very much was like that, challenging the way things were because the gospel of God is so much better. So how do we apply this? And I've got three final slides. And the next one, Book of Revelation, that's from. Uh, the, the lampstands were a prophetic picture of the churches, the seven churches in Revelation. And uh, it's great to hear about your house group, Dalers. Uh, our house group is studying the Book of Revelation at the moment. Now, what happens when you read those chapters 2 and 3? Jesus is talking about the seven churches. And there's a kind of pattern that's followed. He praises them, in most cases, for good things they're doing. He criticizes them for things they're getting wrong. And then he makes wonderful promises to them as they overcome. And that pattern's repeated. But if we're thinking of Jesus walking into the temple and turning things over, what were the criticisms 
We haven't got time to look at all those aspects, but what were the criticisms? Reading it through last night, there was the church in Ephesus that was probably the largest and most successful church in the biggest city in that part of the Roman world. And his criticisms were that they'd lost their first love. Does that speak to us today? If Jesus is walking into the temple, coming to the church with words of uh, warning, have, have I lost my first love? I talked that story about someone not eating for a week when they fell in love, age 20. Have I lost my first love? It's a real challenge. Uh, someone years ago gave me this book called The Sacred Romance. I'll just read a little bit uh, out from it. Above all else, the Christian life is a love affair of the heart. It cannot be lived primarily as a set of principles or ethics. It cannot be managed with steps and programs. It cannot be lived exclusively as a moral code leading to righteousness. The truth of the gospel is intended to free us to love God and others with our whole heart. That's the real heart and essence of it. Have we lost our first love? And the other criticisms are engaging in sexual immorality or spiritual immorality, turning away to false gods. He also warns them they're tolerating sinful behavior within the church and tolerating false teaching. We need to guard that the gospel is accurately taught from the Bible. He challenges them. They're spiritually asleep. Maybe that's another reason for overturning the table. No one could sleep through that. He challenges them. They're spiritually lukewarm. And he challenges them that they feel rich and they feel okay. And maybe materially they are, but they were poor spiritually. So we're looking at the book of Revelation in our house group. Those are some of the prophetic challenges Jesus made as he walked between lampstands being a picture of those seven churches can we learn from them this year is a celebration and uh, it's a celebration of the reformation and that happened 500 years ago and uh, people became protestants are you a protestant do you know what you're protesting against Uh, that's a representation of martin luther the german monk and he was part of the catholic church and he looked at the church and saw loads of abuses and things wrong and he famously wrote out 95 theses or points where he didn't like what was going on and uh, that's him nailing them to the door of that the church apparently we're not sure it actually happened it may have been an urban myth that he nailed them to a door he certainly wrote them out and you can read them uh, and he had that protest against corruption in the church Uh, Whether he actually nailed them to the door, we're not 100% sure, but I hope that hasn't spoilt lunch for everyone. Um, But what was he arguing about? One of the main things was the selling of indulgences. Anyone know about that? And uh, the priests had the idea, and the, the church had the idea that very few people are good enough to go straight to heaven. Who believes they go into the heavenly realm when they die? Well, the church back in those days thought, Looking at you guys, just can't believe that's going to happen. But you're not so bad you're going to hell. So we'll have a place called purgatory in between. And you'll go there and you'll kind of suffer. And eventually you'll be good enough to go to heaven. If you're a, a, quote, saint that's recognized by the church, 
you go straight to heaven. Most of us won't get there. We're going to purgatory, and gradually we can work our way up into heaven, and that's great. But then they started selling these indulgences, and that's letters from the priest in the name of the church. If you bought them, you would speed up that process. So you might be worried about your relative, think they're struggling through purgatory, trying to get to heaven. If I pay the church loads of money, they'll give me a bit of paper that says they've passed go, collected 200 pounds and got closer to heaven. Or I can get closer to heaven when I die. And it's huge corruption. And that's one of the things he protested. He didn't want the church to split. He didn't want to create Protestant and Catholic divides. And I'm really happy that in the 500th anniversary, there's lots of events seeking to bring Protestant and Catholic churches together again. And that's really, really wonderful. But there were real issues in the church getting it wrong. And we had to stand up and protest. And that's an important thing. And they used uh, a lot of the money to build St. Peter's in, in Rome. So if you like to, to see that as built on money from this. So big question marks there. But the gospel of grace is you don't have to buy your way to heaven. None of us can get there. None of us are worthy enough. It's only because Jesus loved us and died for us. So what would God say now? What would Jesus say if he was coming in to turn the tables over? I think he wants to encourage us, but we do need to hear words of warning. He walked into the heart of faith in the world and found it wanting when he was on earth. Will he walk into our churches and our faith and find things wanting? I was thinking about, uh, you get in the papers every few weeks, a vicar having an affair and it's let down the church and it's caused a scandal in the village. I remember the Archbishop of Canterbury campaigning about Wonga. I think he was right to, and uh, there was kickback against it, and, but they've, they've taken a hit as horrible interest rates, ridiculous. But the church got caught up in it as well, because when he, when he attacked them, they found out the Church of England had some investments in Wonga. So we're kind of, it's a mixed thing there, but it's right to take on those schemes that are making people poor and ripping people off. I think the child abuse scandals are horrendous and we need to keep repenting and praying that will be an end to discovering any more things that were done wrong in the name of the church in that area and to repent and to be in sackcloth and ashes over the people that were representing the church and behaving in that kind of way. Consumerism, I think, would be an issue as well and treating our relationship with God as a kind of leisure activity that if I feel like it, if I can find time, I might squeeze God into my busy schedule, but most of the time I don't bother. And I want to pitch up, and if I like the church and the band are quite good and whatever, then I'll come again, but if I can find a better one, I'll go there instead. Those kind of attitudes I don't think are helping people gather as Christian communities today. And prayerlessness as well. It's a real challenge, isn't it? We had Guy Ian Christensen here, minister in Wembley, and he's been here twice, and he said the same thing twice. No prayer, no power, little prayer, little power, much prayer, much power. And it's not as simple as every time I pray a prayer, I get an answer. It's that kind of equation. But there's a truth that he's found over 35 years in ministry. And that's a challenge to me and a challenge to the church. Are we praying? That's a supreme act of faith in God. Because if, 
if you're praying, you're not doing anything as such. So it's pure faith that God is listening and God will act and move if I pray. So would Jesus say, look at the prayerlessness and put that right. What's Jesus saying? What's Jesus saying to me? What's Jesus saying to us as a church? Let's be hearing. It's quite a dramatic story. It's a dramatic impact. It's challenging things. I don't want us to, on the one hand, to think we've got it all right. We're okay. We're the church. That was them. They got it wrong. Neither do I want us to think we're rubbish. We're useless. I want us to get the right balance. What is Jesus affirming? How is he encouraging us? And how is he challenging us? And wrapped around this story is the story of the fig tree. Do you remember that? Where Jesus sees a fig tree, wants some figs, and there aren't any there, and he curses it, and then the tree dies. I haven't got time to unpack that story. But uh, going to the shed to bring the equipment out today, I noticed the fig tree over there hasn't died. It has produced figs. So I'd like to think that both there are good things in our lives and good things in our church that Jesus is doing and is affirming and is food to him. But let us also say, Lord, what are you saying to us? How can we go deeper? How can we go further? What do we need to repent of? And to get the balance right as Jesus walks through our lives and our church today. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your love for us. We thank you for your goodness to us. We thank you that you don't just pat us on the head and say we're wonderful and doesn't matter what we do. Lord, you want to stir us up, to wake us up, to challenge us, to inspire us. We thank you for your love for us. We thank you for the wonder of your death for us. And Lord Jesus, we want to rejoice in all the good you've done. But Lord, we want to be in a place where we can hear from you. And Lord, we're willing and we should be challenged by you. Lord, help us to get it right so that you don't have to overturn tables in our lives, but you can use us to bring in your kingdom. Thank you, Lord. Amen.